I'm Nuna Fatalbek for Burst News. At the end of 2022, the world was introduced to ChatGPT, with ChatGPT Plus announced in February this year. ChatGPT has been a watershed moment for artificial intelligence as it enables millions of regular users to experiment with AI. However, the company also delivered one of the human boardroom dramas in the tech world with the sacking of its CEO Sam Altman and his reinstatement. So what will 2024 and beyond have in store for us for technological developments? And we have futurist Peter Geldneis, the director at the Institute for Technology and Innovation in the business studio to discuss that. Hi, Peter. Thank you for the opportunity, Linda. So what will 2024 have in store? And I know you look at longer term trends as well. Well, you know, before we jump into the field of technology, it's very important to understand some of the underlying trends that are shaping our world. Uh, to use a metaphor, you know, the news is but uh, surface ripples of underlying currents that are shaping our world. And every now and again, as a futurist, we need to understand when these currents change course. And a variety of trends have changed course in the last two or three years. So the idea that we'll ever return to a world pre-COVID will never happen. The world has fundamentally changed. And when we understand what these trends are, it also gives us a context of understanding what the technologies are and how they will play a role. So maybe if I could share with you some of these underlying trends, and then it give, will give a better context of some of the technologies uh, that we'll see in years ahead. Yeah, well, what are these trends? Well, the, the first trend we talk about is peak consumption. Now, let me try and explain where we're heading with this. When we take a look at demographic decline in big parts of the world, we're seeing that um, South Korea, China, Japan, Italy, big parts of Europe are, are looking at severe demographic decline. And this means not only that you have a smaller population, but the population is constituted from different age groups. So you get a, a far larger or older age group, which tends to vote more conservatively. And this has a huge impact on the focus of technology. For example, in Japan, they're replacing people with robots. So when you go to a hotel, a, a robot will, will welcome you and, and serve you food. And the same will happen in restaurants. Uh, security guards are now robots in South Korea because of a lack of units. So we've seen technological developments in large parts of the world, which is supplanting humans. Then in other parts of the world, specifically the middle of Africa and the USA, the population growth will, will actually be positive. So there's a very positive growth in, in uh, birth rates in both of these regions. The, the unfortunate side effect is that in Africa, they don't have expendable income. So we're going to have a severe problem with population increasing from 1.2 billion to about 3.5 billion by 2100. America not growing as much, but America in a far more advantageous position because they are sitting with a huge bunch of consumers in a subsequent years. And therefore, they're looking pretty good when compared to the rest of the world. So that's the first one. And when we then take a look at when people spend money. So the big key challenge you face is uh, normally when you're between the ages of 25 and 45, you spend the biggest amount of money. Why? Because you get kids. You don't have a choice to spend money. Um, <laughs> but normally when, uh, when you reach the age of 55, your kids are out of the house, then every bit of money that you get in, you put away for your pension. So it means that you don't consume as much. So it means that when we'll take a look at the, the rest of the world, there is a large part of people that will stop consuming. They will save money. They'll, they'll perhaps consume uh, services based on healthcare and maybe el the elderly going on vacation, but a large part of the population it will stop 
spending money, and that will have a severe impact on our consumption. We can even see the early signs. With toy companies now taking strain, why? Because in the affluent world, there's not the same amount of kids that we have right now. So that's an early warning signal. And this will then ripple throughout the entire economy in years ahead. Now, this is quite concerning because for the last 200 years, we've seen dramatic growth in in the most economies around the world. Why? Because our market grew. Well, what happens if the market starts to decline? So by 2035, a, a reality might be that a company would say, we're very proud to announce that our revenue only fell by 3% while our competitors fell by 8%. <laughs> so the entire idea of our stock markets being priced in for a price-earning ratio of 20, 25, or 30, with the assumption that it will keep on growing for the next 30 years, might be turned on its head. Why? Because we will have a severe reduction in consumption because the number of people between the age of 25 and 45 were never born, and in more affluent parts of the world, that means a severe reduction in cons- consumption. This has a huge impact on countries in Africa as well, because they normally export their goods to the rest of the world. And if no one buys your goods anymore, how will that impact the economies? Now, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that is new economic regimes or new economic waves, the Kondratif wave, which can fundamentally reshape our economic equation. But that's to be stated later. So that's one of the major trends, peak consumption that we will face perhaps in the next 10 years. You said there is a bit of a positive spin to this, the fact that in Africa or with the other fast-growing areas of the world, they might start developing more. They might, but that we will need to have a completely new economic regime as well as a, a technological regime that will enable this. If we take a look at the 1900s, for example, you know, in the early 1900s, between 1890 and 1910, we saw the introduction of internal combustion engines, electricity, telephones, uh, chemicals, and, and fundamentally that reshaped the entire economy. So similar types of technological advancements can then enable Africa to grow because you could have small-scale nuclear reactors to power plants, you know, solar energy, uh, better food uh, technology, vertical farming that can enable these communities to look after themselves. So new types of technology can lead to massive growth in Africa, but it does mean that the mindset of technology adoption will have to change significantly. So what emerging technologies do you think will have the biggest impact on society? I mean, obviously this year, the word on everybody's lips was AI. So is it only AI or is there other developments that you are looking at? Unbelievable amount of developments currently taking hold. I think the big question right now is what will our energy future look like? If we can enter an era of energy abundance, and there's a number of futurists that think that by 2050, we might enter an era of energy abundance, but this means significant breakthroughs in fields like nuclear fusion, uh, maybe a hydrogen economy. The problem with the EV uh, environment, the electric vehicle Mm. ecosystem, is the supply chains. Normally, for an internal combustion engine, you can have a four-country supply chain, and you can get and resource your material from a variety of, of destination or from origins. The problem with the EV ecosystem is that currently you need about 15 countries in your supply chain. Now, one of the other trends we're looking at is deglobalization and so-called homeland mm. economics. I'll just perhaps have, quickly have to talk about that. We're seeing that the United States uh, specifically is more internally focused, more isolationist. The question is, um, will the Bretton Woods system be retained in its current form? Because what America is doing is to say, you know, I'm energy self-sufficient, I'm food self-sufficient, do I really need to keep the world's sea safe? Is it my responsibility to do so? And the far left and the far right is now saying, no, it's not. 
So if America pulls back from the rest of the world, that means that the idea of globalization is over. You're going to have smaller trade blocks. You might have trade barriers being erected in different countries, the so-called homeland economics, where you, where you look at only your national interest. And because America will have a positive demographic and the other richer countries might not, we might definitely see a move towards that, where America says, you know, everyone wants my consumers, so if you want to play with me, you're going to have to pay the tax to do so. Either you make your goods inside America or not. And those are the two trends we picked up in the Semiconductor Act and the Inflation Reduction Act in America. Remember, I, I talked about a shift change. Talking about technology, this means that both America, the USA, and Europe is looking at opening up semiconductor fabs in both of these continents to be more independent from the supply chain that we currently get from Taiwan. If there's a military action or a blockade of Taiwan from the Chinese, uh, from, from China, then there will be a severe problem in terms of the supply of microchips. So those are one of the technologies. It might be more expensive. So it might be 15, 20% more expensive than we normally used to pay for microchips, but at least you will have the guarantee of your supply chains. And that's one of the key trends we'll pick up. And that's also, unfortunately, one of the sea changes we picked up as well, is that the world is becoming a bit more isolationist. The idea of globalization is over and the economic regimes are shifting. We had an economic regime after the Second World War that was mainly labor-led, so labor-led growth. But then when any system comes into play, the inconsistencies builds up in the system and after 30 years it normally fails. So we've seen that in the 70s with high inflation, and then the world pivoted towards a more capital-intensive growth model. This was between um, uh, 1980 and 2010, and again, this capital-led system, let's go and make things the cheap where we can manufacture them at the lowest possible cost. So a more capital-led model, and China uh, leveraged that, that trend quite effectively. But then in 20, 2007, that economic system then changed and quantitative easing kept the patient on, uh, on life support for a couple of years. And now we're, we're seeing a new economic regime. And this is one that's called homeland economics, a more of a isolationist protective measurement. And this means that we are looking at technology replacement rather than, than shared growth. Um, I'm not a big supporter. I'm, I'm more of a supporter of a, of, a, of a globalized free world, but that's the reality that we're facing. And this will impact um, technological choices. The high inflationary environment will also severely hamper some technologies. A lot of us were quite excited about the smaller scale nuclear reactors, but uh, in the last couple of months, we're seeing that uh, the financial model isn't there. So due to our high inflationary environment, some of the technological advances might be constrained or delayed for a decade or so. So um, it's going to be very difficult for us to make a prediction around when these technologies will appear. Some of the technologies that have already gone past the R&D phase into early stage prototyping, there's enough money to push them through the supply chain, but I think there might be some issues with brand new technologies and to mature them in the next five to six years due to a high inflationary environment. So those are some of the scenarios we're looking at. That doesn't seem so good because we always thought technology would just keep on leaping forward. So there's a very interesting economist by the name of Kondratiev and Schumpeter picked up on it called the Kondratiev Waves. And the Kondratiev Waves shows that we go through the, uh, the spring, the summer, the autumn, and the winter of each of these waves where you get unbelievable growth in your economy. It starts uh, creating a bubble. It collapses. We go into a recession, and then um, the wave emerges again. Uh, we've seen five of these waves. We, we might see a sixth wave emerging by 2026, 2027, but that remains to be seen. It all depends 
on um, the, the government debt. So unfortunately, government debt is uh, significant in most countries around the world, and a lot of the debt is being rolled over. So that means that uh, the government will have to refinance a lot of that debt at a far higher rate. It was normally 0.5%. Next year, America will have to refinance it at 5% or up or 5% or more. And this will, will suck a tremendous amount of money out of the economy and also into technological development. So um, the, the longer we have a high inflationary environment, the longer we will struggle to support some of these massive uh, breakthroughs in technology. Can we look at specific technology? You mentioned yeah. EVs, electric vehicles, that might have a, have a problem to expand that further to more countries. Um, can, can we f first of all discuss AI? You know, okay. what's going to happen with these models like ChatGPT? Because you know, there's always concern that it will take my job and it'll eventually, you know, destroy humans. So, I'm, I'm I've got a contrarian view. On artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, there, there's the two schools of thinking. Some say that artificial intelligence is statistical analysis or statistical manipulation, and some believe it is the emergence of a new super intelligence. Um, for me, asking if AI will replace humans is, is like asking if submarines will swim. It, it, it's the wrong question. <laughs> if you take a look at a termite mound or a beehive, there are clear... It, uh, parameters and constraints between the agents within the network. So think of a, of a simple bee, mm -hmm. and it's got no intelligence to speak of whatsoever, but put a, you know, a couple of thousand bees together and you get the emergence of behavior of intelligence, the same in a termite mound. You know, termite mound, they, they build cities that if a termite might be the size of a human, that, that city would be the size of New York. It's, it's unbelievably complex. And they will build the city and they will have uh, self-defense mechanisms and water drainage systems and places to rear their young and places to store, the, store their old and, and cemeteries. And, and you ask yourself, but where's the centralized intelligence that enables that group of organisms to have this emergence of intelligence? And it's not there. It's, it's purely the parameters that you set in place and the interaction of the agents in the network that leads to an emergence. And that's actually what we're seeing in AI. So AI is after the models have been trained. And firstly, if we talk about large language models, specifically the generative AI models, it all started with a brand new model that emerged in 2017 by, with a paper called Attention is All You Need. So the attention mechanism was quite important because you look at other words in the sentence in order to give context to the, the translation of the words in the sentence. And the transformer models were mainly aimed at language translation. But then when they realized that these models were trained, you could say, here is a sentence in English translated into Swahili or into French. You can also say, take this and write a software program. Take English and give me a summary. Here's English, look at sense analysis. So suddenly we had a computer that works on mathematics and statistics that had a statistical model that enabled the computer to understand language. That's where <laughs> we, we went. And, and that was the key breakthrough. The challenge is that a lot of these models will now have to be retrained because these models aren't really good at logic. You know, Chat GTP2, when we ran that, we asked to listen, my cow died, give me five steps to revive it. It says, sure, you have five steps to revive it. Now, the later models have got definitely a lot better in terms of the logic, but uh, mathematical reasoning is the next big, big, big breakthrough, and that is what, what Q-star might be about. So other than language understanding, does it have mathematical reasoning? And that becomes very interesting. One of the key challenges with, with uh, computer systems, in the past you had to be exact. 
you know, there's the interesting narrative where someone replaced a comma with a full stop, and that meant that a satellite went haywire in the 60s because programming <laughs> went all wrong. But with generative AI, you can literally have freedom of expression, and, and you can ask it anything. Unfortunately, the outcome is also quite um, problematic because it, it creates one word at a time, but it takes a world model and utilizes the world model in order to determine which words should come next. And the moment it chooses the word, that word that is chosen becomes the input to the next word that is chosen. That means that if 20 people write exactly the same request, you'll get 20 different responses. Because the moment the word that is chosen for one example or for one try is, is chosen, that then determines the rest of the word. And that's very similar to these uh, flocks of birds that fly in Europe. Uh, how, what, are the, what are the constraints? How do they move? Well, it's quite simple. The heuristics that guide their behavior is fly towards the middle of the flock, match speed, and don't collide. But if one of those birds fly a half a millimeter to the left, that entire flock could end up in a completely different place. And that's exactly what's happening with generative AI. So we, we're getting all of these diverse responses, but it's bounded by the rules of a language, and therefore it makes a lot of sense, but it doesn't have the same depth of reasoning that a human might have. So uh, sense-making analysis, um, pattern recognition, AI is brilliant at it. The beauty of AI is it, it doesn't cost much to make a mistake. We as humans, we make a mistake and then we don't try it again. You know, I, I wish someone told me that when I was dating in my 20s, but we'll leave that one there. <laughs> but the, the fact is when you, um, a, a computer can make a tremendous amount of mistakes and it will run through an entire scenario and then change one parameter and try it again and then change one parameter and try it again. And it can make a billion mistakes until it gets a more positive response and then it has a breakthrough. We as humans, we can't do that. We are limited by biological life. So we normally stick to what we know what works. And in cases like this, where computers can look at a billion opportunities, they actually might be better at playing Go or chess. But if, if we look at a deeper analysis of understanding the world and the context around it, humans still have the upper hand. We can use AI quite effectively in uh in, in increasing our performance and productivity. And I think that's where the big breakthrough comes in. So we, we will see jobs change, but that's life. Um, and that means that we will have to refocus on originality and what makes us truly human and focus on that as a foundation of our tertiary training to talk about the skills that make us human and the, the innovation, the capability, and utilizing these wonderful tools in order to make us more productive. And I think that's what's happening. Also, in the next couple of years, in terms of technology trends, we'll see companies embedding those technologies inside their own organizations. So suddenly, you, you don't, as a large organization, want to expose the rest of the world to some proprietary information on your end. So what we will see is an absolute uh, gold rush, where we will see a number of organizations taking these models and deploy them in the organization. Let me give you a metaphor. On my phone... I can look at my phone and it unlocks because it has the ability to recognize my face. But the moment I get my phone, I need to train it to identify my face. Now, originally, you needed artificial intelligence in order to identify someone's face. But once the uh, model has been trained, we can now store it as um, an algorithm. Now, algorithm is like a recipe. You know, you want to bake a cake, take so much of that and so much of that and put it in the oven for so long and that's the recipe. That's an algorithm. So when, once that algorithm has been defined, that can then be stored on the device, and then I retrain it with my face so it unlocks my face. The same will happen with large language models. 
the large language model will become far smaller. You'll deploy it inside your organization, and then you will retrain it with your corporate data. And then unbelievable productivity improvements will come because now you can say, give me all the sales statistics of the last five years, create a presentation around it, and give me an analysis of what, what happened or what worked or what didn't work. And the AI will then utilize the large language model in your organization, trained on your corporate data, and give you the report almost in real time. Now, that is on our doorstep, and it's already happening in large organizations. So that's the next big gold rush that will unlock a huge amount of value. And at the same time, as these models then become better, they use mathematical reasoning, and um, the emergence of intelligence is then enhanced, we will truly unlock a huge amount of productivity. And small organizations will now be able to do the same as large organizations due to the fact that they can harness AI to reach that level of, of productivity. Um, let's look at some of the stuff we can touch and we can buy, like smart glasses. Smart glasses, what else? Um, we've got the Meta Ray-Ban, smart cities, autonomous vehicles, autonomous vehicles, not only EVs, uh, quantum computing, advanced wireless connectivity. What will okay. we see? Let's, let's quickly run through them. The Starlink system, quite important. Um, you know, that gives us low, low latency as well as low orbiting satellites. Uh, normally, our geostationary satellites were 36,500 kilometers away from us. You don't get something like escape altitude. You only get escape velocity. But the closer you are to the planet, the faster the satellites should spin. And that's what Elon Musk did with SpaceX, is that these relaunchable space vehicles uh, gave him a wonderful opportunity to create a revenue stream that would cover the entire world with these low latency satellites. Wonderful opportunities in logistics because you can put intelligent locks on your big containers. You scan it with x-ray. The moment you load it on a ship, when you offload it somewhere else, you can see if someone tampered with it and that can make the logistic chain far simpler if you uh, link it to a blockchain. Then um, we, just talking about SpaceX, wonderful vehicle if the Starship can get going. One of the very interesting things that everyone is talking about as of late is helium-3. Now, that links to uh, the abundance of energy. When we look at nuclear fusion, it seems like helium-3 is a far better fuel to utilize than deuterium or isotopes of hydrogen. And helium-3 will have less radioactivity as a result. Unfortunately, it's extremely scarce. But a number of people say there's an abundance of it on the surface of the moon. So... Um, uh, when we talk about the cost of it, I, I, I'm speaking under correction. Uh, it's, it's something close to about $4 billion for a ton of helium-3. So it's unbelievably cheap. <laughs> and, and it's always seems to be in abundance on the surface of the moon. So we, we might see SpaceX, which is space exploration technologies, utilizing these starships in order to do space mining in the next 10 years. And they, that might be a very interesting debate. Now, the Chinese have already mapped the areas on the moon that is has got huge concentrations of helium-3. They've done that about six, seven years ago. So it's not new, um, but but that might be one of the interesting stories or angles that we'll see popping up in the future. In terms of connectivity, uh, we're going to see 5G technology rolling out to the IoT domain. It also means that edge computing will be enhanced quite considerably. So when we talk about edge computing, in the same way that I, I always joke with my students in my class, that this isn't a smartphone. It's an Inco Puko Suko, the internet-connected portable supercomputer. Why? <laughs> because, you know, we, we do about 10 different actions on it, and then we might make a telephone call. Why we call it a smartphone? When we use that logic, we might just as well call our cars a cigarette light on wheels. But the fact is that I can download an app onto this device, 
and automatically changes function because it has a variety of capabilities. And the same is happening now with intelligent cameras. So I can download onto a camera a new app. I'm talking about these security cameras. And it can automatically then repurpose the camera for something else, like counting people, doing face recognition, uh, number plate recognition. Um, it can see if people are wearing safety equipment. It can automatically open up a boom at your mall so that you don't have to pay for your ticket. There's, there's a, a, a huge number of very advantageous capabilities that can now be unlocked in, in the Internet of Things domain with these smart cameras. So that, that's already well on its way. Some other technologies, we'll get to quantum computing in a moment, but we need to talk about robot, um, uh, robot air taxis. You know, you're, yeah. in, you're, you're, you're uh, of a taxis. There are three companies that are really, really well positioned to unlock that market. The one is Ehang in China. Then we have Joby in the US and Archer in the United States as well. Archer and Joby uses VTOL technology where it uh, takes off vertically, then changes the rotors, fly like an aircraft, and then lands again. And it can take about six or seven people, uh, completely all working on, on batteries and are completely pilotless. The Ehang takes about two people, but it's only a drone. But what it means is that the cost per trip uh, is about a tenth of the cost of a helicopter trip. And with Joby, with companies like Toyota investing in it, and with Archer, companies like Uber driving that, in the not-too-distant future, we're going to see a land grab with VertiPorts. So in India, there's already some companies looking at opening up VertiPorts next to the airports and then having VertiPorts in, in the city where it can drop you off on a building. So we normally would take you two hours in Sao Paulo to get to your destination if you're a first-class traveler you climb out of the aircraft, climb onto one of these these drones. It takes you to your destination in six minutes, and that's it. So this isn't far away. The first commercial service is already underway in China, and in the next two to three years, we might see Joby and Archer coming as well. There's about 10 other companies that have got similar technologies, but they were a bit too late because the amount of money that went into that market cut, were cut dramatically, and only about $1 billion was given to the top three players in the field. And that's why I say some of the technologies that have that's gone beyond the prototype stage might uh, be developed. Some earlier technologies might find it a bit more difficult. So watch out for um, for uh, passenger taxis or robot drone taxis very soon. You you, you spoke about a um, quantum quantum computer. So one of the, the key challenges we face is the post quantum computing era. This is very similar to the Y two K era that people are looking at. If we look at our current um, internet security ecosystem. It's all based on prime numbers. You take two prime numbers, you multiply it with each other, and you get a public key. I give you the public key. I give you one prime number, the other person I give the other prime number. That's it. So because I have the prime number, I can easily calculate what the other prime number is that you have. You've got the other prime number. Because you've got the public key or the private key, you can quite easily calculate that as well. But a quantum computer where a normal computer would take about 10 years to break, to crack that code. A quantum computer can do it in three days. And this means that we will have to change the way we look at internet security. So one possibility is to exchange these keys on a more frequent basis. So instead of giving you a key and giving it to you for a 10-year use period, we, up, we update the key on a daily basis. But now the problem comes in that someone can intercept the key. And then for that day, they can completely hack your database. And what they're doing it is they're using a, a, a decade-old, I think about a decade-old concept called quantum entanglement to solve that problem. Now, let me briefly explain what that means. If you entangle two particles, and by the way, 
Einstein couldn't get his head around it. He called it spooky action at a distance. So no one as of yet could explain exactly how it works, but we know it works, so we use it. So once two particles are entangled, they get opposing spins, and then we can remove them. And then they are literally removed over distance, but they act as if they are one. So there are two particles geographically removed that act as if they are one. And the moment someone looks at the one, the other one is fixed. Instantaneous, faster than the speed of light. Now, that has been well known in the world of science and for and physics for years. But what if we use it in order to link that to quantum key distribution? That means I can transmit two particles to two parties and I entangle the particles. And then if the moment someone intercepts one of the particles, the entanglement is broken between the two particles, and then I can decide to, to send it to you in a different way. And we're already very far advanced with this technology. The Chinese have been playing with it since 2004. They've implemented into their satellite ecosystem as well as into their uh, cable and submarine system. That is the way they, they project power, satellites and cables, where the Americans use satellites and, uh, and aircraft battle groups. But um, in terms of commercial utilization, most of the banks that does the reconciliation every night have already embedded that technology. And we see a number of other companies will start using that technology as well. With the G20 summit a couple of uh, months ago, or it was the G7, I apologize, in, in, in Italy, Telecom Italia had a demo or a demonstration on quantum entanglement on their cellular network. So quantum key distribution will be one of the, one of the tools we can utilize in order to bridge this challenge of the new quantum era coming. And, and there's a, num a number of other changes in protocols as well. But one of the predictions is that in the next three to four years, we're going to see fundamental changes in our organizations prepare for this post-quantum world to make their networks more secure. Sure. Now, what about stuff that us as consumers can buy, like wow. Ray-Ban smart glasses? Because Ray-Ban smart glasses are a lot prettier than the previous versions. We, so when we look at these, these glasses, and, 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 you, and you said it, it's something that people are prepared to wear in public. Um, it seems like Meta decided to uh, forego the idea of projecting images on your glass. And in the subsequent updates on the glasses, the glasses will be able to identify or take a picture of your surroundings and then use AI to interpret what it sees. I think there's huge advances for uh, people that, are, that have difficulty with sight. Because by putting these glasses on, you can enter a room and it'll say, well, there's a door on your left, there's five chairs, two people... Aww. And, and it automatically will tell you in your ears, in terms of your microphone, what it's seeing. It's wonderful for language translation. You know, these transformer models can be utilized to do real-time language translation. So someone listening to this conversation will be able to have it translated into a different language. Um, the AI, in terms of its generative capacity, but also its pattern recognition capabilities, from a sound as well as an image perspective, can unlock unbelievable opportunities. So you'll be able to look at a... Um, at a product and get the price. I don't know if you've seen the Humane chip, the Humane wearable device. I've seen um, it. I've, I've read a little bit about it. And, and what you could do with Humane is to look at the food that you eat and, and get an idea of what you're consuming. You can look at a product and it'll tell you what it is. And it also projects an image on your hand to play music or to communicate or interact with someone. So wearable computing is still in its early phases and the exact form factor that will drive the biggest amount of adoption we don't know yet. But there's a huge amount of experiments. So a number of companies are putting these probes in the market. And as in a complex adaptive system, 
there's not a prediction about what will work, but rather a probe, and then you want to see if the probe creates a deeper attractor, a concept called purposeful emergence. So we are now in an era of experimentation, and if you ask me which of these devices will be the dominant one in the future, we don't know yet. Um, let's go and see uh, how the experiments in the consumer market is working. Peter Howell is so fascinating. I must say, when you talk about quantum connectivity, I feel a little bit like the day I read a book from Stephen Hawkins. No idea. Thanks, Peter Heldenes. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a wonderful day.